The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, you have created all things, and you are the planner, architect of the universe. Father, we owe you all our allegiance, all our devotion, all our love. For you are more important, more significant than all the details in our lives. You have brought us into a saving relationship with you through the sacrificial death of your Son on the cross, and you have given us an incredible amount of wisdom in your word to guide and direct us, to be the blueprint for our lives, the plan of our lives, so that we can uh, experience uh, maximum joy and happiness, develop capacity for life. And Father, we can do this only through the daily study of your word and application of it in our lives. We pray now as we look at your word that you would make it clear to us and that these things would be stored in our soul, that the Holy Spirit might use them in the future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Well, last week we began our study of Galatians, and I tell you, as the weeks go by, things are beginning to smooth out a little bit. Last Sunday when I showed up here, I started to go through Galatians and I got about a third of the way into it and suddenly realized I had picked up the wrong material off of my desk. The study is still in such a, such a state of confusion and disarray, I had no idea what happened and I just had to wing it from that point on. And to make matters worse, I had a whole stack of notes, I bet an inch, inch and a half thick, that I had printed before I left Houston to make sure that I wouldn't lose anything. Uh, my introduction of the first three chapters of John and Galatians and had all this, I can find that nowhere now. And I had it up until earlier this week. It was in my study. So I'm slowly, and since then, I've taken some steps and things are beginning to get a little more organized. But I'll be glad when this whole moving thing gets way beyond me, past, so that we can, uh, I can focus a little more and don't feel just absolutely disorganized and in disarray in my, in my thinking. So, uh, Let's begin with Galatians, and we'll have a little bit of a review from last time just to make sure we remember uh, what's going on. Now, one of the big differences, I think, in doctrinal churches from your average run-of-the-mill church that I think is a critical principle, and that is that we don't teach things, come to church and have a nice little flowery homily that lasts about 20 minutes, three points in a poem, so you can go home and hopefully by, by lunchtime still remember those three points, and by dinner time remember one or two of them, and by tomorrow morning at least remember something you heard on Sunday morning. I remember a homiletics professor of mine teaching that, that that's the way it is, and you really want to use crisp little illustrations and make sure that so people can, within a day or two, still remember something of what you said. Well, I don't think the point of teaching the Bible is so you can remember on occasion what has been taught. The point of Bible teaching is to inculcate it to drill it into you, just like anything else of value in life, repeat it over and over and over again so you can't forget it. 
Because we all know that when the crises come in life, whenever anything hits and we have to suddenly go on on um, uh, our emergency reserve, it has to be so deep within our soul that we don't have to think about it anymore. It just automatically kicks in. So we have to go over things again and again and again to make sure they're so deeply embedded in our souls that we can't forget it. You don't want to teach so you can remember it. You want to teach so you can't forget it. Galatians 1, first five verses. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, or not literally, not from men. The sent in your New American Standard Bibles is in italics. That means it's not in the original Greek and you should draw a line to it because he's not talking about his being sent. He's talking about his commissioning as an apostle. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through the agency of a man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Those five verses mark the opening salutation as part of the introduction to the epistle to the Galatians. Right out of the bat, Paul defends his apostleship in the first verse. Now, this is going to be crucial to this whole book. There's three main ideas in this opening opening salutation. The idea of Paul's uh, apostleship in verse 1, and then the emphasis on the redemptive solution of Jesus Christ on the cross in verse 4, and its impact on our lives in terms of delivering us from this present evil age. That is the summation of this epistle, and we're going to come back and see those ideas in a little more detail this morning. Last week, we saw that the author of this epistle is the Apostle Paul, and he immediately, after stating that in a, in a way that is a little bit different from his other epistles, he immediately launches into a defense of his position as an apostle. He says he is an apostle, first of all, not from men. And here, he uses the phrase uh, in the Greek, apa, plus the plural genitive, which indicates ultimate agency. It's apa, A-P-O, plus the genitive plural from anthropos, meaning man or mankind. And what he is saying is he is an apostle and its origin, its source, does not come from man, mankind, or humanity. Basically, what, he, what this phrase indicates is that, that indicates the person who's ultimately responsible for the action, even though they may or may not be directly involved. So here, Paul is saying that his apostleship does not come from a group of men. It doesn't uh, include the idea of a college of apostles, uh, a group of apostles. His, op, his apostolic authority does not derive from any human source or from any human being. He says it's not sent, he is not from the source of a group of men, nor through, and here he changes the preposition, and he uses the preposition dia. D-I-A. Dia plus the genitive of personal agency. So here he's going to talk about the personal agent. Not from the, a group of men, or college of men, or college of apostles. Paul's apostleship does not come from mankind as a whole, or from any conceivable group of men, nor does it come through the individual agency of a particular man. In other words, as a spiritual gift, spiritual gifts cannot be passed on from one human being to another human being. 
And spiritual gifts are by definition given by God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. They're distributed under the sovereignty of God by the Holy Spirit for production in the spiritual life and for its benefit to the entire body of Christ. Now, the last week we looked at apostleship, which is very important to understand this. Some people do not understand what apostleship is. And I gave a definition. I want to make sure you get this definition. Apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos. And there are two categories of apostles in the New Testament. First of all, it was a technical use for the men who were commissioned personally by the Lord Jesus Christ and given the spiritual gift of apostle with the authority to communicate the gospel and doctrines throughout the world. They were to lead the incipient church and to write the canonical books of the New Testament. They were also temporarily empowered to perform miracles and healings in order to authenticate their mission. That was their calling card. They performed miracles and healings. That was their calling card. Authenticated what they said. Only 12 men received this spiritual gift from Jesus Christ. 11 of the original disciples, excluding Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed him and then committed suicide, and later the Apostle Paul. You can look at 1 Corinthians 15, 7-10. The term is also used to refer to pioneer missionaries. These were men who were commissioned uh, by local churches in the first century A.D. The difference is who commissions you. The basic word apostle refers to somebody who's, who's commissioned by one group to a particular task. The difference between the general use of apostle and the technical use of apostle is who does the commissioning. The technical use of apostle refers to those who are commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. The general term usually refers to men who are sent out on a specific mission by one of the uh, twelve apostles or they were sent out by a local church to carry the gospel to a particular locale. So that's the definition of, of apostle. Paul says that he is an apostle. He is one of the twelve. He has the spiritual gift and with it the authority. Now this is very important because one of the things that happened when Paul went to Galatia, after he left, there was a group of, of uh, Jews they're called Judaizers who came in behind him and said, now Paul's a good man, but but he really doesn't have it straight. And they began to run down Paul. They began to uh, criticize him and say that he really doesn't have the gift of apostle. You don't have to obey his authority. He has no real position. He doesn't come from Jerusalem. He doesn't come from Peter. Look, he, didn't, he had no association whatsoever with those other 11 guys. And he immediately began to impugn his authority. So the issue here is Paul has to come back to remind them of his authority and who he is. See, authority orientation is basic to any endeavor in life, including the Christian life. Some of you as parents have a very important role. In fact, I was down somewhere recently and overheard uh, a couple of people talking about how important discipline was for children. That's the only way they learn authority. And it's your job as parents to instill authority orientation into your children. If you don't do it, by the time they're six years old, they will have a terrible time throughout the rest of their life learning authority orientation. Everything you do in life is related to authority. Whether you work, whatever it may be, whether you're engaged in sports, somebody always is in charge. Somebody's always the boss in a marriage, in a family, in a career. Whatever it is that you do, if you don't understand the basic principles of authority, you will always be a miserable failure in your life. And so parents are are given this task. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares spares the rod hates 
his son. Ever since, I guess, the middle of this, this century, you get people who got caught up with the screwy ideas of Dr. Spock that you didn't need to spank kids. And yet that goes completely contrary to the Scripture. It's very important for parents to instill discipline in their kids. Now, that does not mean that, that, that it's abusive. You know, every idiot in this country today thinks that if you spank a kid, it's abuse. Well, that just shows that they don't have a clue about reality and authority orientation. The Scripture says that you are to discipline your child. That's why the Lord patted the rear end, is to make it a good spot to spank them. That's how they learn. And uh, that doesn't mean that you do it out of anger. You have to do it out of the right mental attitude. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him, that's true love, based on integrity and virtue in the parent, the one who loves him disciplines him diligently. Now, that's an important word, diligently, because often as parents, it's easy to get tired of always having to correct the child for the same problem over and over and over again. And after a while, you just want to give up. But you have to be diligent. You have to be consistent. One of the most important traits you can develop as a parent is consistency in the way you deal with your child. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And then Proverbs 20.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, I know you think your little child is the most wonderful, lovely little thing that ever saw the light of day. But the Scripture says that the moment they take that first breath, they're nothing but a sin nature wrapped up in a body. And, as, and until you come along and start teaching them some kind of discipline and control on that sin nature, they're just going to be wild and, uh, and have no rules and no concept of, uh, of any kind of, of borders or boundaries or anything else. In fact, I read a wonderful column that was written by, um, what's her name, Judith, uh, whatever, Miss Manners on the purpose of manners and politeness and all of these things. And it's designed because people are basically, she wrote in this column, basically selfish and arrogant. And so for all of us to get along together and to be able to function together as human beings, we have to develop certain rules of protocol and everything so that we're nice to people, so that we treat people with courtesy and respect, even when that goes against our basic selfish, arrogant nature. And it was a wonderful column, and I didn't clip it out or lost it somewhere along the line, but it just shows the great establishment principles of having good manners. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should really work, at, among all the other things we work at, is developing an understanding of etiquette and courtesy and good manners. That's at the core of everything that we hold dear as believers as important values. The Scripture says we are to love others as we love ourselves. That means we have to learn how to put other people first and to treat them treat them well and that's all part of authority orientation and as a parent it's your job to deal with the sin nature in your wonderful little baby foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of discipline will remove it far from him not a little now now sonny boy don't do that that's not going to cut it patting them on the back of the hand and just reminding them telling them to go sit in a corner is not quite going to cut it they have to learn sometimes the hard way and they have to realize that it's painful to be disobedient and the consequences are hard. And if they learn that when they're a child, when the consequence is nothing more than getting a little pat on their butt and then they start crying about it, uh, it's a whole lot easier than waiting until they're 20 or 21 and they're down in the county jail because they're strung out on drugs or whatever it is and they've made a mess of their lives because they never learned anything about authority orientation when they were growing up. 
So the scriptures clearly recognize that authority orientation is foundational to every endeavor in life, including the spiritual life. And God has established certain authorities within the church within this, for the spiritual life of the believer. And in the early church, it was the, an apostle. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Now, apostles and prophets are spiritual gifts that are no longer on the scene. And the leader today for the body of Christ in local churches is a pastor-teacher and in some contexts, an evangelist. And they have the authority over the church. They are also called shepherds. Just as a shepherd has authority and responsibility to lead a flock, so does a pastor-teacher. He's given, delegated that responsibility from God the Father. And it's his task to make sure that the flock is properly led. That means he has to make certain decisions. He has to set certain policies. And it's up to the congregation to follow his leadership. Now, we all know that at times you may move from here eventually and go to some other locale where you have to find a local church. And you go and you may find one that you like. And this is something I've seen over the years as people move and they, they have to go to a new church. And it's not like the church back home. The pastor doesn't teach doctrine or the doctrine he teaches is a little flawed. And so you have an option. You can start causing trouble in this new congregation and criticizing the pastor or you can just quietly leave. And that, uh, that's what people should do. If you go to a local, new local church, you don't like the pastor, you don't like his teaching, then what you should do is just quietly get up and leave and go somewhere else. Don't make a scene, don't cause trouble, don't challenge his authority, but just get up and go find another congregation and uh, go on your way and do not be disruptive. One of the greatest tragedies in many churches today is the people, one person comes in, they don't like the pastor, and they start criticizing the pastor, and they start doing this and doing that, and the next thing you know, he's caused a tremendous scene, a lot of division, and uh, a lot of people are upset, and it's, and it's just carnality. So we have to recognize apostolic authority. So Paul establishes his authority, and he's going to come back in the second chapter of this epistle and spend almost the entire chapter establishing his apostolic authority because that's one of the basic problems with the Galatian believers is they're in rebellion against him, questioning his authority. What right do you have to say that you have the truth? These other guys are teaching us something different and they claim that you have no authority whatsoever. You're not even associated with the apostles down in Jerusalem. You didn't get your apostolic authority from Peter or from James or John. So who do you think you are? So Paul establishes his authority uh, right out of the chute. Paul, an apostle, not from a group of men or mankind, not through the individual agency of any particular man, but Allah in the Greek, a strong contrast, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, the point that he's making here is that he gets his gift directly from Jesus Christ. Now, last week when we looked at the doctrine of apostles, one of the things that I didn't have with me was the new list of New Testament requirements for apostleship. So we need to go over those. And there are six points. Six points and requirements listed in the New Testament for one to be an apostle. Number one, an apostle of Jesus Christ must be a Jew. An apostle of Jesus Christ must be a Jew. He was the Messiah. He was the promised one from the Old Testament. Christos, the Greek word, Christos, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S is a translation of the Hebrew Mashiach. 
which we call Messiah. And it means the one who is anointed, the anointed one. He is an apostle of Messiah. This is the title of Christ. Jesus is his name for his humanity. Uh, Christos or Mashiach is his title of his role as the Savior or Redeemer of mankind. He is the Messiah. So in order to be an apostle of Messiah, you had to be from Messiah's nation. Uh, the original, those who were originally sent out as apostles, and this has nothing to do with the New Testament gift later on, were all of the twelve disciples. They were sent out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew 10.6. The second responsibility, or the second requirement for apostle, is that an apostle must have received a specific call and commission to his office directly from Christ. He had to be commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. The nature of his office, he had full plenary powers. He had, was given full authority. This is the highest rank in the church age. He had authority over every single believer on the face of the earth. He had authority over every local church. It's not restricted to any local church. And it required, such, such an office required that the commission come directly from Jesus Christ. The precedent was set by the Lord Himself in Luke 6.13. And Paul elaborates on this in, in, in 2 Corinthians and especially here in Galatians uh, 1.1. Third point, the third requirement for apostleship was that they must uh, have been an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ and have heard His teachings. They must be an eyewitness of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and have heard his teachings. If they were to be foundational witnesses to Jesus Christ and what he taught, then it was necessary for them to know, A, what he taught, and to have seen his ministry, his earthly ministry, or his public ministry, while he was alive on the earth. This is why I think that the Apostle Paul, we went over this last week, was, if you look at the chronology, the Apostle Paul was probably among the Pharisees and the scribes that were arguing with Jesus time and again during his time on the earth. He might not have been one of those arguing with him, but he was probably there as a witness. He was there as a witness for the stoning of Stephen. He held the clothes of the Pharisees. And that occurred only two or three years after the crucifixion of Christ. Now, we're not told anything from the Scripture about that, but if you put things together, it stands to reason that Paul had been in Jerusalem at least three or four years before Jesus Christ began his public ministry. So the Apostle Paul was probably very much aware of who Jesus was, he was, had become a prominent figure, at least by the crucifixion, and had heard him teach on one, or, one occasion or more. And, of course, the, other, the others had heard almost everything that, that Jesus taught. So an apostle, first of all, had to be a Jew. Secondly, an apostle needed to have received their call and commission directly from Jesus Christ. And third, the apostle, an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the teachings of Jesus. So Paul made it specifically clear that he was that he met these requirements as an apostle. First Corinthians nine one, First Corinthians fifteen eight, Acts twenty two six through twenty one. I'll give those again. First Corinthians nine one, First Corinthians fifteen eight, and Acts twenty two six through twenty one. Okay, the fourth requirement for an apostle. An apostle must possess authority in communicating divine revelation. An apostle must possess authority in communicating divine revelation. He had to have a certain level of authority. When an apostle spoke, it was thus saith the Lord. He was a mouthpiece 
for God. He gave absolute truth. When an apostle, an apostle must possess authority in communicating divine revelation, and what he wrote under divine inspiration was directly from the mind of God. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that the Scripture is the mind of Christ. So that what the Apostle wrote under divine inspiration had been in the mind of Christ from eternity past. So everything we study in Galatians had been in the mind of Christ from eternity past. Everything we study on Wednesday night in James was in the mind of Christ from eternity past. Everything we study in the Gospel of John was in the mind of Christ from eternity past. So the apostle had a certain level of authority that was above and beyond anybody else in the church. Fifth, an apostle is required to furnish the signs of an apostle. An apostle was required to furnish a sign of the apostle. This is in 2 Corinthians 12.12. These consisted of miracles, healings, prophecy, uh, signs and wonders, all of these things authenticated their message. They were the calling cards of an apostle. Here he came along and he said he had new revelation, that he was chosen by God and he was speaking for God. How do you know that? How would you know that? Because he performed works that were above and beyond anything else that could be seen. In fact, there was one instance when Paul was in Ephesus where there was a Jewish uh, exorcist by the name of Sceva. And Sceva and his, had seven sons. And they were all exorcists. Now, the Bible uses the term exorcism to describe the activities of unbelievers in trying to deliver somebody from demon possession. And exorcism always has to do with magic. It never has to do with the true power of God. The term exorcizo, which is the Greek word from which we get exorcism, is never used, never once used of the work of Jesus Christ as the disciples in casting out demons. The verb that's used there is ekbalo, which means to cast out. Never the word exorcizo. So exorcizo refers to this mystical, magical kind of uh, thing where they would try to uh, cast out demons. And so these guys were following Paul around because they would see that Paul could actually cast a demon out of somebody in the name of Jesus, and they couldn't believe it. So these guys came along and and, uh, they said, well, if he can do it in the name of Jesus, we can do it in the name of Jesus. So they would find a demon-possessed person, and they would try to cast out the demon in, in the name of Jesus, and the demon would say, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but I don't know who you are. And then the demon came out and it physically attacked these guys and ran, just, just beat them up, mauled them, and ran them out of town. So the apostles did things that, that were above and beyond what anybody else did in terms of apparent magic because Satan always tries to duplicate God's miracles. But the miracles that Jesus performed and the miracles that Paul performed and the other apostles were radically different. For example, you go to these crazy healing services that people have and they come forward and they have problems like a, a one leg shorter than the other and they have a, a bad back or, or their vision's not real good. And, and, but they don't have constitutional problems. Problems like cancer, bone cancer, leukemia, where they come in one day and they have the, the medical evidence that proves that they have this disease and then they come to healing and they're healed and the next day there's no sign of that. You have Jesus performing the signs of, of God in John chapter, I think it's John chapter 8, and he heals the blind man. He's blind from birth. Everybody knows that. He was born blind. Everybody in Jerusalem knew that this man was, had always been blind. And Jesus gives him instant sight. Nobody did anything like that. And casting out the demons the way they did. Nobody did. They marveled at the authority that Jesus had over demons. Uh, healing the lame. People who were, who were 
crippled. Their legs withered up. And it was just restored in their sight. Nothing like that ever happened. So the signs, the miracles, the healings that were done by the apostles and that were done by Jesus were radically different. It demonstrated the veracity of their message. So an apostle furnished the signs of an apostle through his miracles, healings, and signs of wonders. And then sixth, an apostle possessed plenary authority among all the churches and that he differed from any other person in the New Testament. He was... He had authority over everything else. Peter, for example, judged Ananias and Sapphira on the basis of his authority as an apostle. Paul asserted responsibility for all the churches in 2 Corinthians 11.28. And he dictates to the different churches what they should do in various matters, like, for example, the disciplinary matter, matter in the congregation of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5.3. They had authority to tell every local church congregation how to conduct their business. So Paul was an apostle. It's clearly established, and we'll spend a lot of time when we get to chapter 2 rehearsing the authority of an apostle, the signs of an apostle, and the qualifications of an apostle. In summary, apostleship was a unique spiritual gift that was sovereignly delegated by the Lord Jesus Christ and distributed by the Holy Spirit according to 1 Corinthians 12, 27-28. Ephesians 4.11 and Colossians 1.1. As a spiritual gift, spiritual gifts are given to every believer at the moment of salvation. The instant you were saved, you received your spiritual gift. There's not something you pray for. There's not something you get later on after you're saved because you reach a certain level of spiritual maturity. Spiritual gifts are given at the moment of salvation by means of the Holy Spirit. They're not transferred by one, in, one human being to another. Today, all that are left are the permanent spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are divided into temporary and permanent. The temporary gifts were tongues, healings, um, some of the um, uh, gifts of prophecy, uh, the revelatory gifts. These were all temporary in nature. Once the closing of the canon came, once the New Testament was complete, then it was no longer necessary for these particular gifts. In the pre-canon period of the church age, those gifts were necessary in order to communicate the revelation about the church age and the unique spiritual life of the church age because they didn't have it written down yet. But once it was all written down, it was no longer necessary for these people to uh, continue their function. Gifts like apostle, prophecy, miracles, healings, tongues, these were all temporary and have not been operational since 96 A.D. Apostles were not appointed until after the resurrection of Christ. You had no apostles until Christ was raised from the dead and they did not really become operational until the day of Pentecost when the church age began. In the uh, post-canon period of the church age, there are no apostles. Uh, the gift of apostleship is not passed on from one person to another. There is anyone today who claims that he is apostle is completely uh, confused about Scripture and it, they're getting into heresy and blasphemy. Now, Paul says in this first verse, Paul, an apostle, not from a group of men or college of men, not through the individual agency of a man, like Peter or James or John, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, the reason he mentions resurrection here is because Paul himself was commissioned by the resurrected Christ. And he's reminding his readers of, of his testimony of how he came to know the Lord on the road to Damascus when Jesus Christ appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
He's reminding them that his, his apostleship was directly from Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Now, what is resurrection? I want to cover about six points on the doctrine of resurrection. First of all, definition. Resurrection means to be physically raised from the dead with a body of incorruption that is never again subject to the limitations of a mortal body, including illness, harm, and physical death. Resurrection means to be physically raised from the dead. So you have to die first. It's important to be physically dead before you can be resurrected. To be physically raised from the dead, not spiritually raised from the dead, but physically raised from the dead. There was a movie that came out in the late 70s about the life of Christ, and all these movies have a hard time dealing with the resurrection. I don't know why anybody just doesn't have Jesus appearing in a physical body after the resurrection. But what you had in this particular movie is that all the disciples are gathered in the upper room after the, the uh, crucifixion and, and then, of course, Mary comes in and says that she's, she's seen resurrected Christ and, and uh, Peter and John run out and then they come back. And then when Jesus comes into the room, instead of having Jesus, and with special effects they could do this, instead of having Jesus bodily walk through the wall into the room as he did, all you hear is this disembodied voice. In other words, it's not an objective reality that he was raised from the dead. This is just a spiritual thing. Jesus is alive again in our hearts. And that's just pure liberal theology because you can't have anything like, like that because it's not testable. It's never happened again. How can anybody verify that he actually rose from the dead? Nobody actually saw it. But yet, Scripture is clear that over 500 different witnesses saw the resurrected Christ. That's, that's 498 more than you need to establish it as reality in a court of law. In a court of law, all you need is two. But over 500 saw the resurrected Christ and could testify that this man who was crucified and died had been raised from the dead. So in resurrection, you have to be physically raised from the dead with a body of incorruption. Now, that's why Lazarus wasn't resurrected. Lazarus just got his old human body back. He still got colds. He still got the flu. He still got sick, and he eventually died. But resurrection means to be physically raised from the dead with a body of incorruption that is never again subject to the limitations of a mortal body, including illness, harm, and physical death. You see, when we die, and at the rapture we get our resurrection body, we're never going to be sick again. We're not going to have any physical limitations. We're going to be able to eat all of the chocolate cake and ice cream that, that, that we can imagine and, and won't put on a single pound. We're going to look good. We're going to have perfect bodies. We're going to be in shape. We're not going to have to work out. We're not going to be subject to any diseases. We're not going to be subject to growing old. Um, none of those things will, will bother us. We're going to have perfect, perfect bodies. Scripture reveals that there are two resurrections. This is something people often have trouble with. There are two resurrections in the Scripture. The first resurrection comes in several phases. First phase. Christ as the first fruits. Using an agricultural term, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first to be raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15.20 and 23a. Christ as the first fruits. The second phase of resurrection is the resurrection of the royal family of God or the church at the rapture. When the dead in Christ are raised first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with, him in the, with them in the clouds. 
those who are uh, dead in Christ, their physical body is in the grave, and they are their, uh, their, their soul and their spirit is face to face with the Lord, and I think in some form of interim body. If you remember the story in Luke when, uh, Lazarus, about Lazarus and the rich man, and Lazarus dies and he goes to uh, uh, Sheol and so does the rich man. The rich, rich man is not a believer and so he is in torment, and, the, uh, and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom or paradise. This is before the, the uh, crucifixion of Christ. So he's in, these are the two compartments of Sheol. Uh, paradise is comparable to heaven and at the resurrection of Christ. All the believers in, uh, in uh, <clears throat> Abraham's bosom were taken to, her- to, to heaven. Paradise was then transferred to heaven. But at that point, and they're se- they, they were in one place in Sheol and they're separated by a great gulf between them. And as Jesus tells the story, the rich man who's a, who is a, an unbeliever is in torments, in fiery torments. And he says, he can see Lazarus across the great gulf and he says, just put some water on my tongue. I just want some water. Just cool me off. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that he has some form of interim body during this period. It's not his resurrection body yet. It's some form of spiritual body that, that takes the place of, of, uh, of a permanent body. It's a temporary uh, transitory body until the resurrection body comes. So the uh, believers who die during the church age, at the instant of their death, they're face, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord in an interim body. And then at the rapture, they are uh, instantly uh, gathered together. I always like to uh, laugh about it a little bit because um, when Jesus rose from the dead, think about this a little bit. When Jesus rose from the dead, there was nothing left in the grave, was there? Absolutely nothing. His physical body was gone. What had been his physical body, all of the atoms and molecules that made up his physical body were transformed into his new body. He didn't just get a new body where the old body was there in the grave. The old body was completely resuscitated and remade all over again into this new resurrection body. Now, have you ever thought about what's going to happen with organ transplants? If I die and give my heart to some guy down the street and he's an unbeliever at the rapture, is that heart or that eye or that cornea or whatever? I don't know. Just something to twist your minds a little bit this morning. (laughs) So, the first resurrection is Christ. The first fruit, second resurrection is the rapture of the church. And the third part of the first resurrection are the Old Testament believers and tribulation martyrs. OT believers and tribulation martyrs. These are the three stages of the first resurrection. Uh, Fourth is believers at the end of the millennium. The fourth stage are millennial believers. Those are the four... Then the second resurrection, the Bible talks about, a second resurrection is for unbelievers only. A lot of people don't think about that, but unbelievers have uh, continual existence of their soul. I won't use the term eternal life, but their soul never ceases existence. It lives on and on and on for eternity, just as ours does. The soul will never cease existence. It's either going to continue that existence in heaven, or it's going to continue that existence in the lake of fire. The second uh, resurrection is in Revelation 25-15. through It's for unbelievers only for the purpose of judgment, and eternal condemnation. So resurrection is defined as to be physically raised from the dead with a body of incorruption 
that is never again subject to the limitations of a mortal body, including illness, harm, and physical death. Scripture reveals two resurrections. The first has four phases. Christ is the first fruits, number one. Number two, the royal family of God, the church at the rapture. Number three, Old Testament believers and tribulation martyrs at the end of the tribulation. And number four, believers at the end of the millennium. The second resurrection is for unbelievers only. Point number two on the doctrine of resurrection is that Jesus Christ set the pattern for resurrection as the first man to be raised from the dead, so he is called the firstfruits. His victory over death is the basis for our victory over death. And we make a lot of decisions in life. The most important decision you and I ever make in life is whether or not where we're going to spend eternity. Our decision about Jesus Christ, whether or not to accept Him as our Savior, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. We make all kinds of decisions that affect all kinds of things in our life. But there's one decision that we don't have anything to do with, and that's our decision about our death. God determines the time, the manner, and the place of our death. And when we die physically, that is when we share in the victory over death that Jesus Christ established on the cross. Third, our physical death is a prerequisite for resurrection. That is, in all but the rapture generation. With Jesus Christ, He physically died. There's always somebody who comes along with a theory that Jesus did not really die on the cross. That in some way, He he just swooned or passed out. Or it was some sort of drug-induced coma. But anybody who takes the evidence seriously, you know, that's the trouble is they usually take out their razor blade and cut away all the evidence out of the Scriptures. That that would just put in there so it would look like it. But if you take the evidence that we have, the first-hand eyewitness account seriously, for example, John tells us that when the uh, centurion pierced the side of Jesus with a spear, that blood and water flowed out. Well, when you're crucified, because of the way you hang on the cross, because of the way your, your intestines are forced up, Inside your abdominal cavity against your diaphragm, what happens is the blood collects in that diaphragm and it will, at death, it will separate into hemoglobin and, and, hemoglobin and lymph. So when that came out to John, who didn't have the medical terms we have today, it looked like blood and water. But that can only happen after death. So his eyewitness observation that blood and water came out is clear testimony that by that time, Jesus Christ was dead. So physical death is a prerequisite and there's no doubt that Jesus died on the cross physically. He also died spiritually. That's how He paid for our sins because the penalty for sin for all humanity. And the Scripture says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. So Jesus Christ died spiritually on the cross during those hours of darkness. And then when he had finished paying the penalty for our sins by his spiritual death, he said, it is finished, and then he died physically. And when he died physically, it was to show that his, his death was not only a, a conquered spiritual death, but also physical death through the resurrection. Jesus said in John 11:25, I am the resur- resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then finally... All believers who die in this age will be resurrected at the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4:16-17. Paul, an apostle, not from a group of men or agency of men or from mankind, nor through the agency of a particular man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. 
verse 2, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches at Galatia. Now, Paul always traveled with a few men. Uh, Titus, Barnabas was some here. When he was writing the church in Galatia, he was in, in Corinth. And Timothy, and um, Timothy was with him, and uh, perhaps Silas was with him as well. All the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, who were these Galatian believers? Last week, I gave a little introduction to them. These are a group of, of Celts who had migrated into this area from Europe. Turkey looks something like this. Down here, we have the uh, Mediterranean. And here we have Turkey. And over here, we have the uh, Bosphorus. Up here, the uh, Black Sea. And the Roman province of Galatia is in south central Turkey. And on Paul's first missionary journey, he visited three cities located along the coast, back in from the coast a little bit, Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, and he founded several churches in this community. And after that, he went, went back, he was there with Barnabas, and they returned back to Antioch, which was the mother church that had sent them out, and then Paul left from there and went out on his second missionary journey. And while he was on his second missionary journey, he heard reports from these churches in Galatia that um, they had uh, they were no longer believing the gospel. They were being being distracted by the Judaizers and believing in uh, a work of salvation. But who were these these Galatians? Well, during the uh, time of the development of the Roman Empire, uh, there was a group of Celts from up in uh, uh, western Russia that had migrated down into uh, down into Europe. Part of that group went on into uh, Spain and then into Ireland and then back into Scotland. But there was another group that migrated from Europe back eastward and they tried to get into the, the uh, Greek peninsula about around 290 B.C. where they fought a tremendous battle at Delphi and were defeated by the Greeks. So then they crossed over the Hellespont and the Bosphorus into uh, Turkey. And there they became a mercenary force and just sort of sold themselves out to the highest bidder. And uh, one of their kings uh, made a deal with one of the local kings down in this area. And so they were given this territory down here as their own as a reward for, uh, for fighting for them. They, um, later, when the Romans took over this area, they made this section a province. And it was called the Roman province of Galatia. So these are the, uh, the churches of Galatia. There were several of them. And they'd all gotten caught up in a work salvation and a work spiritual life. Then Paul gives, in verse 3, his standard... Um, salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that grace is mentioned. This is always the policy of God. Grace is the unearned favor of God. It's very important to understand that. It's the unearned, the unmerited favor of God. That is God's policy for dealing with mankind throughout human history. Whatever era you're living in, whatever dispensation, God's policy is always grace. Dispensations are the major ages of human history and God's administration. And God changes the way He administers history. In the Old Testament, you have the age of the Gentiles up until Abraham. Then you have the age of the Jews, and that extends up to the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. And then 50 days after that, on the day of Pentecost, you have the beginning of the church age, the age in which we now live. The church age will terminate with the rapture of the church when Jesus comes not to the earth but to the clouds and all believers are then resurrected, the living and the dead, 
resurrected to be with Him in heaven. That's followed by seven years of uh, tribulation on the earth, a time when Satan throws his greatest temper tantrum and wreaks havoc on the earth. God finally judges him, comes back and judges him and his forces at the Battle of Armageddon, then judges Satan and the Antichrist, the false prophet, cast them into um, the bottomless pit for a thousand years, during which time we have the perfect rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. And at the end of that, we have the end of human history and um, Satan and all of his followers are cast into the lake of fire. Whatever age you're talking about, whether it's the Old Testament age of the Gentiles, Old Testament age of the Jews, New Testament church age, future tribulation and millennium, God's policy is always great. It's never worked. Even in the Old Testament time of the Jews, from Moses up until Christ, during this period when they were under the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Law was never a basis for salvation. You never tried to earn or merit God's favor. In fact, that one of the primary purposes of the Mosaic Law was to show that God's perfect standard is absolute righteousness and that this is just uh, one in- instance of it and nobody could obey it. It's impossible for man to measure up to the perfect standards of God. So not even the Mosaic Law was ever a means of salvation. In fact, the Mosaic Law was really more comparable to our Constitution. It was the law of the land for believer and unbeliever alike. It was not <coughs> designed uh, to provide salvation for the Jews. It, w- it included aspects of it were for believers in terms of the ritual in the, in the uh, tabernacle and temple, but it was not designed for salvation. Grace has always been God's policy for, man- for mankind. Grace to you was a typical uh, greeting by the Greeks, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you get a, a, a new meaning to it in the epistles. It's linked together with the standard greeting from Jews, which is shalom, or peace. Grace to you and peace. But Paul adds something. It's from God our Father. True grace and true peace or inner happiness can only come from God our Father. And the reason is because of the work of Jesus Christ. So it's God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are included together. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Notice that little word, our. God is our Father. He's writing to the Galatians. So he views the Galatians as believers. Remember, not everybody is a child of God. The Scriptures clearly teach that the only way you become a child of God is to believe in Jesus Christ. John 1.12 says, For as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. Only to those who receive or accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Jesus confronted the Pharisees at one time and said, You are of your father." The devil. In other words, you haven't, you're not a believer yet. You're not a child of God. You're of your father, the devil. So when Paul says, includes the Galatians, God is our father, he views the Galatians as fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the issue is not their salvation, but what they are doing in perverting their salvation and their spiritual life. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that He might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, when we get into this, we discover very important foreshadowing here. Talking about the Gospel. That Jesus Christ is the one who gave Himself. And the verb here is from, from the Greek didomi. 
It's an aorist participle. D-I-D-O-M-I. And it basically means to, to give. And it is a basic word of grace. Indicating grace. That Jesus Christ gave Himself. It's free. There's no strings attached. It's not based on anything that God sees in us. It's not based on anything that we've merited. It's not based on our personality. God doesn't look down and say, you're such a wonderful person. You're so nice. You come from such a good family. I'm going to save you. It has nothing to do at all with who you are or what you have done. It has everything to do with who Jesus Christ is and what He has done. He gave Himself for our sins. Now, this word for our sins is very, very important. It is the Greek word pair. Rough breathing mark, H-U-P-E-R, and it is the Greek preposition for substitution. And to give it its full meaning, we should say, translate this, who gave himself as a substitute for our sins. You see, this is the nature of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. He died as our substitute. He died in our place. You know, people in history have come up with different theories of the atonement. One is called the moral view of the atonement. And this is the view that is it's very popular. It was first articulated by a man named Abelard in the Middle Ages. And the moral view of the atonement is that Jesus Christ demonstrated by his morality what God expected of man. And so this represents uh, God, God's, uh, Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross um, uh, merited God's love. And so, uh, because of his morality, uh, then this is available to every human being. It has nothing to do with that. Another view is what's called the governmental view of the, of the atonement. And that this is just an aspect of God's justice, but it's not substitutionary. And then there is the exemplary view of the atonement, that Jesus just died to show us an example of how we should be willing to dedicate our lives, even to the point of death, for what we believe in. But that has nothing to do with salvation because in all of those systems, basically everybody ends up getting to heaven. What Scripture teaches is this whole idea of substitution. And it's right here in this preposition. Who pair? Jesus gave himself as a substitute. He is on the cross in our place. He has taken our punishment on himself. The Scripture, scripture clearly teaches that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Now, that's not physical death, as I said earlier. That is spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God the Father. So you can have no relationship whatsoever with God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. Spiritual death is eternal separation. And it's on the basis of our sin because God the Father is perfect righteousness. Because He is perfect righteousness, He can have fellowship only with perfect righteousness. Mankind has relative righteousness. We do not live up to God's absolute perfect standards. Even our very best cuts no ice with God. The Scripture says that all our works are as filthy rags. Even the best, all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags in the sight of God. God just looks at it as garbage, our very, very best, because it's all been tainted by the fact that we're children of Adam. We have a sin nature. We sin because we have a sin nature. 
We don't have a sin nature because we sin. Now, that's a very important distinction to make. You sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. When you are born, you are, you inherit from your father Adam a sin nature. That sin nature is passed on genetically through the cell structure of the human body. That's why it's called the body of sin in Romans 6. That's why it's called the flesh. All these terms relate to the physical nature of the sin nature. And at the point of your birth, when you take that first breath, at that point, uh, God the Father imputes to you Adam's original sin. So number one, we have Adam's original sin imputed to us. Number two, we have our own sin nature. And number three, we commit eventually personal sins because of the imputation of Adam's original sin, because we possess a sin nature, we are volitionally going to commit personal sins. So you have strike one, strike two, strike three, we're out, and we can have no relationship whatsoever with God the Father. So something has to be done if we're going to have a relationship with God the Father. So God the Father, out of love, which is the, motiv- which is the motivation for God so loved the world that He what? He gave, there's our verb again, didomi. God the Father gave His Son his unique son, to die on the cross so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So what we read here is who gave himself, Jesus Christ gave himself as a substitute for our sins for a purpose, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. So the first phrase, who gave himself for our sins, has to do with the whole doctrine as we're going to see in chapter 3, towards the end of chapter 2, chapter 3 and chapter 4 of justification by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone and not on the basis of our works. And then the chapters 5 and chapter 6 are going to talk about the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ as a result of our justification. We have true deliverance. We are in bondage to sin. We are enslaved to sin. That's the point of Romans chapter 6. We are born in bondage to our sin natures. We have no choice as an unbeliever but to sin. There's no Holy Spirit. There's no new nature. There's no human spirit. So we can't do anything that's not sin. It's only as a result of the Holy Spirit's ministry and regeneration who, makes it, who enables us to understand the gospel and who then regenerates us and makes our faith effective for salvation that we can then be obedient to God. So the point of our salvation is not just eternal life, but to deliver us out of this present evil age. This present evil age is the church age in which we live. This is an evil age where in the cosmic system uh, Satan is working his way on planet Earth and if we're going to avoid the consequences of living in Satan's cosmic system then we have to apply the principles that God gives us for living the spiritual life. Remember, there are three phases to salvation. Phase number one is justification. That takes place at the cross when we are saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two is the spiritual life when we are saved from the power of sin. And that only comes about when we utilize the two power options in the New Testament, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. When we apply doctrine in our lives and we grow spiritually, then the sin nature no longer has that control over us. Saved from the penalty of sin and justification at the point, at the moment in time when we put faith alone in Christ alone. Point number two, we're saved from the power of sin as we apply doctrine in our lives. And then phase three, is glorification when we are saved from the presence of sin. We have a resurrection body and we have no sin nature.
That is the Gospel. In a nutshell here in verse 4, who gave Himself as a substitute for our sins that He might deliver us out from this present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. This is God's plan for our life. It's a blueprint. If you follow the blueprint, then you will be delivered from the power of sin in your life today. And then Paul closes with a doxological phrase in verse 5, to whom be the glory forevermore, because the ultimate purpose of God's plan is for Him to be glorified in the angelic conflict. So we'll conclude there this morning and pick up in verse 6 next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word and to understand the significance of our eternal salvation, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Father, it is our prayer that there is anyone here this morning who does not have Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, who has never put their faith alone in Christ alone, that they would take this opportunity to do so. All it takes is a little privacy and the privacy of their soul, forming words by thought alone. Just say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died for me. Father, now as we uh, (coughs) take our break and then resume our worship of you later on. We pray that you would, the Holy Spirit would uh, drive these things deep into our souls, that we might remember them, that we might never forget them, and that no matter what kind of uh, adversity we face, that these doctrines would be recalled to our mind by the Holy Spirit for their application. We pray this in Jesus' name.